Welcome to the Lee Sloan Podcast. I believe that ideas and conversations have consequences, consequences that impact generations to come. Thanks for joining me today. Together, let's be brave enough to think, brave enough to feel, brave enough to change the world, one brave conversation at a time. If you happen to be a human being living on planet Earth, I am completely confident that at some point in your life, you've experienced a time where you felt like you've made an irreversible social mistake, a time when you might have broken some unwritten rule or certain people found out about a certain faux pas of yours and you were on the outs, whether it was blatant and obvious sort of blacklisting, like losing your job or maybe losing a relationship with a loved one. Or maybe it was a more subtle thing. Maybe you just didn't get a call back. Maybe the people you once thought cared about you started sort of just looking the other way. Blacklisting, by whatever name you choose, maybe you call it shunning, ostracizing, shaming, all of these types of things, it's basically the effort to make someone experience social pain for making the wrong choice. And it's something that seems to be this sort of essential ingredient in every human experience. And as much as we try to minimize it, we constantly find ourselves dealing with either being the recipient of this kind of shaming or the perpetrator of it, even without realizing it sometimes. Very few of us actually think that shame is good. If you asked anyone, a random person on the street, you would think, no, we don't like shame. I mean... There might be an occasional comment like, shame on you. But by and large, our society professes to being shame-averse. Now, my kids, they're homeschooled, and so, you know, they're mostly homeschooled anyway. And so let's just say that they don't always fit all of the social norms of the world around them, right? And I could give you many examples of that. But we we have this great neighborhood with lots of kids in it, very diverse bunch of kids, and they most of the time get along. But, you know, several years ago... Some kids moved in and, you know, they're not, they're not our neighbors anymore, but it was, it was great at first. They played together. They were pretty little at the time. And I noticed that, that one girl though, one day I noticed she was kind of just stealing some of my kids' toys and I could see that they were on the other side where she lived. And so when I asked her about the toys, she denied it, claimed it was hers, even though the truth of it was just very obvious to me. But then what happened was really fascinating and, and pretty hurtful. Her, her little manipulative brains went to work and she proceeded to spread a rumor that my son was actually stealing from her right after I had confronted her about stealing from us. It was a classic projection strategy, you know? And the sad thing was it actually worked. A lot of the other kids started avoiding my son because of the rumor that she spread. And he started wondering what was happening to me. He had never been ostracized before and he was very bewildered. And now he had no idea how vindictive this little girl was being. And I didn't want to really put um, negative ideas in his head about the situation. And so I was so proud of him. He continued to believe the best about her the entire way through this experience. But it was It was super tough for me to watch my firstborn child for the first time experiencing the pain of unjust rejection. It's an experience that, you know, because we've all felt it before, we want to shield our children from as long as we possibly can. 
but it's inevitable, right? And I grew up in Los Angeles where shame and blacklisting was pretty much a regular part of life. And I would argue that in most places it probably is. But I attended a school, Cohasset Street School, where I, as a, a little white girl, I was the minority. And even though I had very tan skin and I frequently got mistaken for being a Latina and, and you know, I got the honor of being yelled at in Spanish. <laughs> but um, I, I only attended that school for a few years, but my time there definitely left its mark. And I I was, knew this this other girl who was there just, just one of these days um, that I saw her out on the playground a few times. It wasn't like I, I knew her, like I talked to her or anything like that. But she was a girl who didn't know the first thing about surviving at Cohasset Street School. And first of all, her name was Sunshine. Now, with a name like that, it's really hard to fit in. But um, I, knew, I knew her because she went to my church as well. And it's really rare that you see the same person at your church and at your school. I could see her at Awana's, and she would wear the Awana you know, badges and everything. Um, and, but she was very different, Okay. I mean, she didn't know how to fit in. She was just too, you know, too much of herself. I mean, um, and so I I knew that she had a big family with lots of dirty, rambunctious brothers, and it was apparent that they didn't have a lot of resources. Um, she had dirty blonde hair, and you, you weren't quite sure if, if it was just dirty or if it was her, the color of her hair. Um, and I don't even know if she knew me, right? But... Um, but I saw her one day alone on the playground and she wasn't playing. She was normally a very happy little girl, but she was crying. And I, I didn't know what had happened, but I could only imagine that she had been mercilessly teased because of just the way she was. I just knew it was only a matter of time. And I knew that that day she had officially probably become an outcast in that school. And I knew that nothing would be the same for her again. And I, you know, I was a Christian little girl and I knew that it would be a good thing for me to go over and befriend her to see what was wrong, to let her know that I knew her and that I cared. I saw her pain and, but I just stood there at a distance as if I didn't know her, as if I, you know, um, didn't want to help. And looking back on it, I remember that still, and I'm sad about my choice but I know in my heart what it was that I feared. Now that I look back on it, you know, it was as if she was kind of like a social leper. And I felt that if I got too close, that somehow her status as an outcast would somehow find its place to rest on me. And, you know, I, I probably just subconsciously reasoned, like, I've got to survive here too. You know, I don't even speak Spanish, so I don't know what those girls with the big bangs are going to be saying about me. <laughs> And so I became assimilated into the shame culture without even realizing it, even as young as probably I was in third grade at the time. And I know that you all have your own stories of shame. And whether it's being shamed or um, being a part of the culture of shame. And as adults, we like to think that we've grown past our childish ways, but we really haven't changed all that much. And sometimes we think of, you know, we don't think of it as bullying. You know, maybe it's a more sophisticated social strategy. But it's pretty much the same kind of strategies that we've been employing since we were little kids. Only now they're a lot more sophisticated. 
So I want to shift for a minute from the emotional now to the intellectual. I want to try to look at this through the lens of a sociologist. Why do groups shun individuals? Or at times, why do individuals shun groups? Does shunning serve a greater purpose? Or does it really as a whole diminish us as a society? Now, historically, shunning has been a useful tool. It made a lot of sense, you know, in the small village where there was no one else to turn to. If someone violated a highly prized principle in a small town, he or she would feel the pain of that violation by being ignored or humiliated, maybe put in the stocks. This, this, the purpose was to cause the violator to change his or her ways. And the pain of even just the thought of that would be enough to deter wrongdoing. Assuming that the shunning was done for serious offenses, the unity would then in the village or the small town would then be preserved and the shunning would have served its purpose. I mean, you know, some offenses put everyone in danger and that's really why we put people behind bars. But, you know, many religious groups for many, many years have employed shunning as a major tool in the maintenance of their culture. I found in several places in the Quran, shunning is commanded very strongly. One example is uh, Quran 447. It says, O you who were given the scripture, believe in what we have sent down to Muhammad, confirming that which is with you. Before we obliterate faces and turn them toward their backs or curse them as we curse the Sabbath breakers, and ever is the decree of Allah accomplished. Now, I'm sure Muslims around the world would have different interpretations of these verses, but to be sure, shunning was a major part of Muhammad's worldview. We have to admit that also we as Christians, I'm one as well, we have to uh, admit that we have historically used shunning as a social strategy as well. We know that Amish communities are known for their practice of shunning, even though many disagree on how it should be administered and to what degree, It's really part of what makes their communities work. It's an effort to keep the faith pure and to prevent what is seen as the contamination of culture. And, you know, I'm not Amish, but so, you know, we may look strangely on these sort of side religions that practice shunning. But, you know, mainstream society, we have our own subtle ways of shunning as well. In Hollywood, we call it blacklisting. Maybe you shun a business and call it boycotting. It's any, I'm talking about really here, any act of avoiding someone intentionally. It can be a very, very powerful social tool. And shunners have reasons for doing so. I mean, Muslims might feel that they're remaining pure to their faith by refusing to associate with someone who might not be so pure and so devoted. And the Amish might feel that they're shunning their loved ones in an effort to show them the error of their ways and to drive them back into the quote-unquote fold. Even in the Bible, the Apostle Paul encourages some form of shunning in an effort to turn sinners from the error of their ways. There must have been a positive effect this practice had for the time and place in which it was prescribed. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5, he says, Is it actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we have this example, but then we have so many other New Testament examples to actively discourage shunning, when actually at the time, shunning was a deeply embedded cultural norm. For example, Jesus refused to shun tax collectors and what they would call sinners by eating with them when the common Jewish practice was to never share a meal with that kind of person. He also ends up conversing with a Samaritan woman at the well, which was two strikes. She was a Samaritan and she was a woman. No self-respecting Jewish man would have ever done that in his day. And, you know, we even when we talk about Paul, even though he seems to encourage shunning, he also rebukes his, his colleague Peter for caving into the pressure to shun other believers. See, um, some people at the time said that he should refuse to eat with Gentile believers, believers who are not Jews, because they were still uncircumcised. But Paul reasons that God makes everyone clean from the inside out. And so he discourages this kind of shunning. So I guess in general, in contrast to the Quran that encourages the shunning of unbelievers, Paul or Jesus seems to instruct followers to avoid association, not with sinners, but with those um, who may have some kind of hypocritical behavior. And But there always seems to be this characteristic of, of hope of a redemptive return back into fellowship. There's no real evidence that I see of permanent disassociation. And so as we fast forward from the historical to now 2,000 years later, our world has changed significantly. You know, it's, it's completely different today, shunning that it once might have been an effective tool for driving the sheep back into the fold. I think the overall effect has lost in our global society. Now, think about it. Like I said before, if, if you had violated the social norms of a small group, back in the day, um, you might have quickly realized the error of your ways. Why? Because there was nowhere else to go, was there? You couldn't hop on a plane and move. You had to deal with the people that were right around you. But today, we're connected to so many people all around the globe that if you violate the norm of one culture, you can just go and make yourself a new one or find another one online, right? You can gather in all kinds of different groups of people. And so an an article I read on the Amish stated that, surprise, surprise, it's very rare for anyone to return after being shunned. If a little bird can only find one nest, then maybe they'll come back time and time again. But if it flies away and finds a new nest, you know, the threat of being kicked out of the nest isn't really very great, is it? On the other hand, The globalization of our society has caused this sort of new shunning dynamic to occur. So like if you screw up in a little village, you only had the people you knew and saw every day face to face to talk with and contend with and be reunited with. But now if a person screws up badly enough and from a big enough platform, you can be permanently shunned by most of the known world. (laughs) 
people by people you've never even seen, never even talked to. Now that is shunning on a whole new level that I doubt generations past would even be able to comprehend. It creates all kinds of new moral dilemmas for us to grapple with. So now I want to put on our psychological hat and ask ourselves the question, why do we shun? Why is this such a habit of ours? Well, I think we have some principled reasons and then some more gut level reasons. So I want to start with the obvious principled reason. When a person violates the most important principles of another person's conscience, we shun them. We, it's a way of communicating that this is not okay and we refuse to tolerate this behavior. We did this to Harvey Weinstein after many of his sexual allegations came to the surface and were confirmed. But before then, people were pretty much bowing down to please him because he had such power in Hollywood. And suddenly the Me Too movement was born. And people realized that sexual misconduct was something that it was now much more important to us as a larger society. We saw the Hollywood culture that always pushed the envelope on sexual morality. Suddenly they became sort of the sexual morality police, right? And we saw people who were seen fraternizing with him years before. They were called into question. What, like, what is your character? How did you, did you know what had been going on this whole time? Why are you associating with Harvey Weinstein? And so we saw this sort of guilty by association thing beginning to happen as many members of the Hollywood elite were put on the stand to defend their actions. It seems like our society started becoming, and it's still seeming to lean toward becoming scarily reminiscent of the McCarthy era. If you'll remember studying in history, possibly that, that people were, that were suspect to have committed the worst sin of that era, which was the sin of being a closet communist were put on the stand, right? And we now have different worst sins. It's not communism anymore, But the principle remains, whatever the worst sins of the day might be, whether it's your political persuasion or or your personal identity, in any case, human nature tends to play the same old song, maybe with slightly different lyrics. But Harvey Weinstein's actions were far reaching, and so was the effect of his dismissal. So after this comes the fear that anyone's head could be on the chopping block next. And people were socially scurrying around wondering who was okay to talk to and not be socially indicted. And maybe some of this is good. Maybe the fear of consequences will keep these powerful perverts from doing really stupid stuff. But will this effect last or will it only take a different form? Is it a movement toward positive change or is it just a fearful anxiety about being perceived as evil? We so often tend to be more concerned with how we appear than who we really are on the inside. I heard a talk with Kathy Lee Gifford, and she was called into question, I think it was on The View, about the way that she extended her friendship to Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein after all the sexual allegations were underway. And she explained that she felt it was part of her faith to extend forgiveness to her friends, and she called it not being a fair-weather friend, but, but to stick by them in difficult times. And as the conversation ensued, there was some argument as to what it meant to stick by someone, 
even if they were a horrible criminal. Now, here, I don't think the issue is really friendship, but to me, it's the question of what's good for society in principle. If we're going to think about the whole of society, is it the per- is the we know that the person who is harming people obviously needs help, but is ostracizing them providing that help? To me, it seems that shaming is a cheap way to get short-term cheap results. I like what James Walpole says. He says, public shaming enforces outward compliance, not internal change. I want to go to my interview with Gene McConnell on his experience of being shunned for his sexual misconduct. But this fear of influence was actually the church, not Hollywood. With uh, going to the clubs and in the, in the massage parlors while I was pastor. Mm-hmm. And so all of that adult behavior was wrong. There's no doubt in my mind that I should have been punished and disciplined for that. But what the church chose to do was to throw me out and have no one ever talk to me. I couldn't call anybody. Mm-hmm. I couldn't talk to anybody. No one was. No, one day I was, everybody was my friend. The next minute I was like a leper. And the reality is, is that. I needed support and I needed help more than ever in my life because I made some serious mistakes. There's no question I did wrong. No question there should be discipline. Mm -hmm. But when you use withdrawing a presence as if you're so bad, we can't give you our time. You're so bad and so evil and so destructive that we can't even think about talking to you, which is so opposite of what is really necessary. Mm -hmm. Now, Gene has a really amazing story, and I want to hear a little bit more from him later. But I want to stop here and talk about a phenomenon we're seeing, which I could call multi-level shaming or maybe a better term is second-tier shaming. It happens when you experience public shaming for not being ashamed to do or say something. Now, CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, was publicly shamed for having the gall to get this eat at a Chick-fil-A during Gay Pride Month. He'd accidentally committed the cardinal sin of left-wingers, openly supporting a non-gay-affirming, religiously-based conservative business like Chick-fil-A. He experienced and succumbed to second-tier shaming. He so did not want to be associated with the shame of Chick-fil-A that he ended up issuing a public apology for his insensitivity for eating chicken on the wrong day. It's true. So... Besides our more principled reasons for shunning, we also have these gut level and maybe a little bit more nefarious reasons for shunning. First of all, jealousy. We have to admit that jealousy is a powerful motivator for shunning. When certain people get too much social power, it's only a matter of time before someone else is going to try to bring them down. We love watching the mighty fall possibly because we feel that in some small way, maybe we can just step over their dead body on our way to the top. That's why accusations come out much more against those who have a high level of notoriety, run for public office, who are wealthy, and celebrated to a high degree. We feel like we have something big to gain if we discredit someone who's made it big. Very rarely is the little guy really bothered too much. But another reason we shun is that we want to be perceived as being distant from someone else. And we talked about this a little bit before. 
But, you know, I, I remember watching the movie Help, and it was an amazing story. It's set in a small southern town in the 1960s, right in the heart of the civil rights movement at a time when household servants were barely just a step up from slaves. And in the movie, the matriarch of the house is having a luncheon with some of very influential women when a black woman comes to her door. And it's her elderly black housekeeper's daughter who's come for a visit. Now, this is a really bad time for her to come. And so she's reading the disapproving faces of her guests. And she doesn't want to let the young woman in at the front door. But, you know, it's, you know, in the 1960s, the young woman protests. She walks through the front door anyway. And this white woman feels so much pressure uh, of, of this kind of second tier shaming that she ends up firing the elderly maid on the spot. This is a woman who has worked for her for so many years, a woman who even raised her own daughter to the point of adulthood. It is a very telling and emotional scene, but it showcases the power of the social pressure to shun. This woman knew the cost. She knew she could either shun or be shunned herself. And so we feel this need to remain distant from those who are not as accepted as we are, just like I did with this girl I knew, Sunshine, on the playground. (laughs) Another similar reason we have for shunning is to project our sins onto others for fear of others are going to find us out. You know, like that little girl who framed my son for stealing after she'd been accused, we have a tendency to project on others the very thing that we struggle with. We feel that if we shout louder about someone else's failures, that maybe no one will really notice our own. So the closer you are to a situation, the more you fear retribution, the more vocal you might be about pointing out the sins of another person and, and cutting them out of your life. For all of the movement forward in the Me Too movement, and I think overall it was a positive thing, but I can see the tendency of a sex saturated Hollywood crowd to point fingers in an effort to exonerate themselves from very questionable behavior. I want to quote to you a summary of a study that was done at the University of Rochester. It was a fascinating study. Uh, the, The summary of it said that neuroscientists have found that social rejection is experienced much like physical pain connected to the same neural circuitry. People who perceive that they have been rejected or excluded by a group are more likely to harm multiple persons if they become violent. Does school shooting come to mind? The study also finds that when we ostracize others, we suffer also a similar degree of pain as the person being ostracized. While those who are being ostracized might have felt more anger, the one who did the ostracizing actually feels more shame lack of connection, and even loss of autonomy. So this is just so fascinating that when we inflict pain on others, we ourselves suffer too. And this is the hidden pain of the person who chooses to shun. Shunning actually produces real pain in us. And so with more and more ways to be connected in our world, we find that the silence of our friends can be deafening. The same article goes on to say this, the imposition of silence is a power play 
that expresses the ultimate contempt for the target. As George Bernard Shaw put it, silence is the most perfect expression of scorn. The one giving the silent treatment, whether it's not answering an email, turning away in the middle of a conversation, or pretending not to hear a question, gets to feel control. In not explaining the cause, the perpetrator delivers particular pain. The message is loud and clear. You do not matter. As Americans, we seek to be a people that is ever tolerant, to rise above shunning, and to accept all people equally, right? We don't use the word shunning or or recognize it often when it's happening, but we can see it hiding in plain sight. It's the quote-unquote not-my-president bumper sticker, right? The disdainful use of the terms left-wing or right-wing. It's the cheap shot in a debate to go after another debater's character in an effort to dissuade people from the argument. We may not make dunce caps out of paper anymore, but we use shaming language to pile on people's heads. The dunce cap piled on the conservative might be words like racist, homophobic, misogynist, greedy capitalist. The dunce cap conservatives might give liberals could be hypocritical, elitist, ultra PC, troll, snowflake. Here's what Gene McConnell had to say on the topic. If I say I voted for Donald Trump, and I did, Mm -hmm. but for that reason alone, I've had tons of friends, Christian friends, completely defriend me because because I the way I voted. Are Mm -hmm. you kidding me? Are you that we can't actually have this place where we can't have conversation or talk about it? Mm -hmm. We're just going to cut people off because we don't agree. We are like little kids. So why, where do you, where does that come from? Do you think in the human psyche that why do we do that? Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with we think that punishment that we're really I'm going to punish you for being bad and that somehow that will correct the behavior. But abandonment does just the opposite. It makes me more angry and more hurt. And it's the last thing I'm going to do is come crawling to you when you walk away. Mm-hmm. Because why would I put my neck on the line if I believe you don't care? Yeah. Why would I put my neck on the line when I believe it? all you're going to do is chop it off? Right. And don't There's you no way. Don't you feel like in but, some sense we we want to remove our own reputation from the quote unquote sinner or the one who's right. who's defected? We we say I'm not them, and so we right. we want to remove our our yeah our reputation. We feel like we're going to be sullied by their presence, you know. Sullied, and you know, and also many times it reveals that our inability to have conversations in a real way. So we may not even know exactly why we believe the way we believe. Or it's not it's not defensible enough for me, so I don't want to be revealed as I don't know what I'm saying. I just yeah. want to stay with what right. I believe. Right. And, and so, so I'm not going to have the argument. I'm not yeah. going to have this conversation. Right. And so it really shows our weaknesses. Yeah. So so that's what I hope people really see is that um, whenever we see people take a cheap shot at someone or try to you know to attack their character when there's no need for it, that I I want to see people start to wake up and like say this isn't. This isn't a right way to have a conversation, you know. Um, shutting right. someone well, down is not the way 
to go. Well, you know, the thing is, is that I, I you know, I didn't vote. You know, I, I'm just going to I'm just going to be as honest as mm -hmm. brave and open. I didn't vote for Obama. I absolutely hated his mm -hmm. policies. Mm -hmm. But I would in no way ever shape ever with no way, shape or form say you can't be my friend because you voted for Obama. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Let's have let's have a conversation. Like, uh, why yeah. did you vote for him? Yeah. So what is the values that you carry that made you vote for him? What is he doing for you that you really yeah. believe is good? I, I'd love to hear that because right mm -hmm. now I can't see that. So let's have that conversation. Yep. Yeah. But but we won't have that conversation because all we'll do is we'll say, Oh, you're just some kind of right wing idiot mm -hmm. or you're some kind of left wing creep or what you mm -hmm. can go on and on. We attack we after we can attack someone's identity yes. rather than have a real conversation. Yeah. And and right before you got on here, I don't think you saw it, but I was just talking to my mom about identity and how, how shame is linked to this topic because yes. it's the difference between you are the problem to you, you're, the way you're thinking is a problem or the right. way you're acting is a problem. And so right. that's where I see the difference between like a positive form of, you know, boundaries, I guess you would call it instead of shunning. Um, yep. The positive form is like I'm removing myself from your actions or I'm removing myself from your, um, your way of thinking to I'm removing myself from you. You know, as society grows in diversity and a plethora of different opinions and convictions are there that we have to contend with, maybe at a really gut level, it's too scary for us to abandon this practice of shunning altogether. Maybe it's in these crazy times that we feel the need to power play our hand of shame. And it's possibly a defense mechanism that we've learned, but, and maybe we're just not comfortable letting go of that kind of mechanism, that, that knee-jerk reaction. Maybe it's just that shunning is the laziest and most effective form of punishment. I like what Janice Harper says. She says, shunning is a non-action. To shun is to avoid, not to interact. So if shunning is a non-action, then it's hard to even know what's happening to you. The prospect of shunning makes you paranoid every move that you're getting maybe quietly defriended or disinvited and, and you don't even know it. Social media provides us with this thicker layer of social standards for ourselves that we're left to interpret and evaluate on, all on our own. And this sort of ambiguity can leave us guessing where we really stand with the people that we call friends. Let's hear from Jean one more time on someone who chose to love him out of his place of shame. And one of the most important things that happened to me, Leigh, uh, that changed my life, um, is in the middle of my messes, when the church had thrown me out, I literally uh, people who I'd given my life to um, had thrown me out and said, get out of here. Now, again, I said I deserve discipline. But what happened there was, is for about a year, I mean, I was a mess. And uh, I was worse off than ever. And this guy gave me a call on the phone and he said, hey, you know, um, I haven't seen you in about a year. And he lived about three hours away. And he said, you know, I haven't seen you in about a year. Uh, come down and spend some time with me. I've had you on my heart. And I thought, man, that's my last friend in the whole world. Why would I want to do blow that? And I said, no, I'm really kind of busy. He would take no for an answer. So I ended up driving down there. It was about three hours driving, and I'm thinking I'll talk about the weather. I'll talk about Dodgers. I'll talk about anything but anything serious. I get into his office, and I'm in there more than five minutes, and I began to just pour out everything. I mean, I just opened up stuff I'd never talked to another human being about. All this stuff that I knew if it ever came out would be the end of me relationally and professionally. And I put it on the table with this guy. 
And he gets up from around the, behind his desk and he comes towards me. And I don't know what he's going to do. So he's going to he's going to throw me out like everybody else has. And I stand up with my fists clenched. Literally, I, I figure I'm going to punch the sucker if he does anything weird. And instead, he gave me this big embrace and he held on to me. And he's holding on to me in this hug. He began to weep and to cry uncontrollably. I feel tears running down the side of my neck. And he says, so I'm so sorry that you've never experienced God's grace and God's heart towards your, your struggles. I want you to know that God loves you and you're his son and we're going to get through this. And I'll tell you something. I've been in church all my life to 29 years old when I was there. I've been in church so I was 29 years old. I've been a pastor's kid and I had never tasted anything like that. Wow. And what he demonstrated was, nah, he wasn't embracing my sin. He wasn't embracing my flaws. He wasn't saying what I did was okay. He's saying there's more to you than that. And I want you to know I've got your back. I'm going to fight for that dignity. I'm going to fight for that value. You are more than what you've done. Mm, that's pretty powerful. And, um, you know, I, it just occurred to me, like, some we think that we have to uh, approve of what everybody does. In yep. order to be in relationship with that's just kind of the mantra of our culture is like, yep. I celebrate you and everything you do yep. in order to love you. But you're saying it's really the opposite, that love yep. is actually expressed when we don't approve exactly. of what people do. <laughs> actually, love isn't complete unless you can love your enemy. Unless exactly. you can love someone that you don't get along with, yeah. and pro- so you're so unfortunately there are, and I'm not saying this to get to, to flag or do anything to anyone, mm-hmm. to say to put them down, but that, the idea that I only have people around my life that agree with me is yeah. a sad scenario. Yeah, that I, I really do need to build relationships with people who I don't agree with. I really wonder if we can somehow choose to go past most and, and just drop off all these primitive forms of shunning. To quote James Walpole again, I want to say that shame galvanizes opposition and makes people dig deeper into their own positions to defend their egos, of course. If it's true that shunning rarely works in our society, Maybe we should instead allow people to say what they mean and experience the natural consequences of their actions. Maybe the answer to society's ills is to run toward our offenders, not away. To extend love, not acceptance of their actions, not endorsement, but a way out of their mess and into a better way of being. But who is brave enough to run into the fire to stop the explosion from causing more and more casualties. Very few. You know, Jesus talks constantly about going toward the person who's wronged you, being brave enough to take that first move. Maybe it's the best way of finding out what's inside a person. Maybe by moving toward them in conversation, we'll find that people are much more likely to change their ways when we come to them, not at them when they feel heard, when they feel connected, and when they actually do have a voice. Maybe their tone of voice will change along with their actions. And yes, it makes it that much more complex when we're judging people we've never even looked in the eye but only heard about on the news. But such is the challenge of being alive today. Are there ways that we can draw up our personal boundaries and codes of conviction and make people aware of them without alienating them from us. 
What ideas do you have? What has worked for you in the past? Maybe you have a case to be made for shunning. In any case, I want to hear from you. You can visit this topic and comment on the show notes at leesloan.com. And you can actually find out more about Jean McConnell there as well. You can also find me on Facebook and connect with our Brave Conversations group. I might disagree with you, but as long as you're respectful, I promise I won't shun you. So thanks for listening. And I want to leave you today with this one final thought. I have, I just, I'm just going to give you one clear example. Just recently, Mm -hmm. um, I had a woman come to me. I I lead small groups on a regular basis and where people deal with relational health issues, they're struggling in their relationships and they need help, whether it's an addiction or whether it's a, they're going through a divorce or separation or whatever. And the, this one woman who came said, I would love to join your group. She says, but there's no way possible that I would ever be accepted. And I said, really, I've, I've had people put the most amazing or unbelievable stories on the table and no one's rejecting anybody. She goes, you don't understand. She says, I'm Muslim. And I said, so why is that a problem? And she says, because most people, when they find out I'm Muslim, they walk away. Hmm. Wow. And I'm going, holy smokes, are you kidding me? You know, I may not agree with your faith. I may not agree with some of the things that you believe, but you're a human being. You Mm -hmm. have value. Yeah. And I am going to enter it at that place. Yeah. Rather than the whole idea that because I don't agree with you, we can't have conversation. How are we ever going to change the world? (laughs) Exactly. 